This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. There has always been a risk to being a public figure, particularly a member of Congress. Beyond the violence of events like the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol, members and their staff face threats all the time. Our own Jim Saxa reached out to every member of Congress to ask if they had received a death threat. The results were pretty shocking. And Jim's here on Political Theater today to discuss what he found. So let's talk about the the methodology, uh, your methodology in reporting out this story. Because, I mean, we're we're obviously we we've been reporting about the aftermath of the January sixth attack, uh, uh, the one year anniversary of that, and so forth. But you you started working on this project a while ago because it you know it's, that's a that's a lot of people to reach out to. So just talk about your method before we get into the results. Yeah, so the idea was to ask every office, all 435 uh, House members, 100 senators, and the the six non-voting delegates. Um, And uh, we did that uh, using email, um, basically uh, using, uh, you know, shameless plug here, CQ roll call uh, data that you can get if you, I don't know, spend a lot of money on a CQ subscription. Um, got the names and email addresses of every press secretary or communications director. Um, and then I used a mail merge to contact every office. Um, that first ask was like, can you tell me? And like, give me some, some like, you know, tell me everything essentially. Uh, and a lot of offices were like, well, no way. Um, you know, I got a handful of offices that spoke on the record in the piece but most were unwilling. So uh, in my follow-up ask, I, I sort of threw that out the window and just made it, just tell me on deep background, meaning I won't use the name, I'll just use the information, um, whether or not you've received a death threat, um, you know, in the last, uh, I think since t- uh, 2020. And yeah, what we got from that uh, was 75% of respondents um, you know, uh, I forget the exact number, but 140 some odd, um, said, yes, we've received an explicit death threat. Um, a whole bunch, about a dozen, uh, added without my prompting that, uh, not a explicit death threat, not something that count as a death threat, uh, in like the court of law, but, uh, something that I got as close to that line as possible without crossing it. Um, so, uh, just about everyone that that I spoke to said they received, you know, something that was, uh, you know, really nasty. Um, so yeah, it's a huge problem. And uh, U.S. Uh, Capitol Police uh, have released some data on this that have shown that, you know, it's gone up. It's more than doubled since 2017. It went from about 4,000 that year to about 9,600 uh, just just this past year, and that that. That tally includes all of the, the, the nasty messages that don't quite uh, reach the prosecutable level um, and those true explicit threats. Um, and yeah, I listened to some of them and they were just really, really nasty stuff. 
And it like this, what you found too was that there isn't, um, I mean, at least with the people who responded, and that's a pretty good response rate for any kind of public poll, really, um, is that, you know, the, these were Republicans, they were Democrats, they were super conservative, they were super progressive, they were middle of the road. Uh, everybody, it seems, is is comes in for um, for these threats, which is is in some, in some ways, you know, that makes it even harder to process. It seems other than just that they're members of Congress and their targets. Yeah, um, it, it really is everyone. And you know what actually surprised me, and I and I can't really say more than this um, was the few offices that uh, did get back to me and say we haven't gotten explicit death threats. Some of them would be offices you would have expected. They've gotten some like news that would have upset one side or the other a lot, or they were involved in the news. Um, and then there were a bunch of offices that like, frankly, I'd never heard of the member, you know, like these are not people that are in the news a lot and they were getting, you know, some of the most heinous stuff. So um, yeah, it, it, it truly was left, right, middle, um, you know, the loudest in the room to the quietest uh, wallflowers and you know, it, it didn't seem to have much my reason. One thing I, I would add to that, though, um, is I heard this from people on the left, the far right, um, both, um, not just people in the middle said this, but uh, they were getting it from both sides. You know, there were liberal Democrats saying, uh, yeah, I hear, it. you know, I'm getting this vitriol from my left flank and my right flank. And the same thing for really, uh, you know, Far right populist Republicans, uh, far right libertarian Republicans, you know, both uh, were saying like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm whatever I do, I'm I'm damned essentially." And did did anyone, you know, either members or staff, sort of, you know, kind of have theories about what is going on? I mean, like we've, you know, obviously January six is this sort of you know moment in our history that was was you know, made it very vivid for people the, the, that violent politics had become violent. Um, but, you know, did anybody say like, I think it's this, I think it's Trump, or I think it's the squad, or I think it's this or that? I mean, did, who, who, did anybody offer any theories on it? Yeah. So, I mean, I heard from some, uh, both on the left and right, um, that said, you know, what we really need is to tone down the rhetoric. And they, they sort of pointed at leadership to, to, take, the, to take the lead there. Um, you know, that's something that Angie Craig said. Uh, that's something that uh, Pat Fallon said. And that's, you know, a liberal uh, uh, Democrat from Minnesota and a conservative from Texas, uh, respectively. Um, and, you know, like when I asked them, you know, some follow-ups on it, you know, they, they both sort of said, well, like, really what we need is uh, the other the other side uh, to take some steps. Um, you know, and it's sort of like that's that's one of the problems is you're always going to see uh, the other side as being worse than your side. And you're going to be a little bit less willing to police your, your allies than your opponents. But, um, you know, beyond that, I, I did talk to some members uh, who said we really need to look at the incentive structures uh, that lie behind uh, this phenomenon. And this phenomenon of like overheated rhetoric, it, it isn't coming out of nowhere. As one of the, the people I talked to for the story said, it's not that like the constituents have gotten crazier. We're riling them up more. 
And the reason why we're riling voters up more is because it works, right? Uh, if you if you look at who gets the most attention and who gets the most uh, campaign money, the most contributions, it tends to be some of the farther out there, more extreme members of both parties. Um, you know, it's very telling that if you look at like the top ten fundraisers in the House. Uh, if you discount for the handful that are running for the Senate right now and then, you know, get rid of uh, Pelosi and McCarthy, the leaders, you see names like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You see names like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, you see Lauren Boebert. And these uh, members, uh, the one thing they share in common is they are good at riling the base up and really inspiring uh, uh, their side. Now, a, a lot of people, and I, I would agree with this, um, would say it's unfair to uh, directly compare AOC to Marjorie Taylor Greene um, because you know one of them has an interest in legislating and the other doesn't. Um, and that's something else I also heard is that there was a concern, again, on both sides. And uh, this is one where some Republicans were willing to point at themselves and some Democrats were all also as well. They were saying that there are members who aren't really interested in legislating. They are interested in being famous and raising money and getting attention. And those people though, like the incentive structures uh, are in place as one of the, uh, you know, one of my sources said, you know, this is the way that they get, huge campaign contributions. You know, you go, you say the most you could think, you know, it gets picked up on social media, it gets picked up by traditional media, and that brings in, you know, millions in $50 and $100 contributions from across the U.S. So it's less about representing your constituents, the actual 700,000 or so that are in your district, if you're a member of the House, it is more about just being a, a culture warrior for your side. And as long as we have a campaign finance system that encourages this, said, again, uh, this one Republican uh, member who's been around for a long time, you know, he, he basically said, uh, it's time to rethink Citizens United, it's time to rethink the entire campaign finance system. And, you know, what he suggested was giving power back to the parties and, you know, uh, because at least there, there's some accountability and oh, the money would flow through to, um, you know, some adults. Um, and he uh, also bless, bless yeah. his heart. Isn't that, is, doesn't that sound feasible? <laughs> yeah. That, that person's never going to say that, uh, uh, on the record, uh, unfortunately. It wouldn't matter if he did because it's not going to happen either. <laughs> not with a more conservative Supreme Court, you know, than the one who struck down Citizens or gave us the Citizens United uh, uh, decision. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I hear you too with the with the fundraising. I mean, you know, I like you, you know, I get all these fundraising pitches. I, I end up on all these news on on the receiving end of all these uh, pitches, and I am amazed at how many of them involve gun giveaways. Uh, you know, I mean, like that, that if you, you know, you, you pitch in 15 bucks for me, uh, I'll enter you in the drawing for uh, an AR-15. And that way, you know, the, the, you know, Joe Biden won't be able to take it away from you or whatever, you know, like some, some like thing that 
it just, you know, when you think about it, it's like, okay, maybe that's just one person who's feels very strongly about guns, but it's just like the cumulative effect of it just feels kind of overwhelming at times. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a vicious cycle when we, uh, when you have members of both sides engaging in this constant culture war, uh, I mean, it's a total couture comp, right? And when they are doing that all the time, they are getting rewarded with the, with the campaign contributions and the attention and what they, they want. But what it also does is it, it, it pushes the, the polarization that is making it harder for, you know, not just members of Congress to talk to one another, but just average Americans to talk to one another. Um, you know, there's this really, uh, there's a recent study uh, that, that showed that if you ask members of the two parties, uh, you know, regular voters, um, their views on non-culture war issues like taxes or spending money on uh, schools or something. Uh, if you ask them what the other side thinks, they tend to get it right. You know, they have an accurate representation. But if you ask them their views on a culture issue, uh, on an issue like gay, gay marriage or how they treat migrants or abortion, abortion, exactly. Uh, they think that the other side is far more extreme than they are. And, you know, it's just, it is just driving us apart. And unless someone actually looks at the incentive structure, and maybe, you know, like you raised, maybe it requires the Supreme Court to rethink its decisions as Citizens United. Maybe it takes a really thoughtful effort to try to craft a new campaign finance uh, regime that can work under that that uh, that uh, constitutional framework that that court uh, handed down. Um, you know, one thing that would uh, be, I think, uh, kosher in the eyes of the court would be, you know, actually requiring real disclosures of who's giving money and how much and why, and avoid the the shadiness that you can, um, you know, the ability to hide donations through super PACs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is really, uh, you know, unless someone really wants to look at some of those incentive structures that are driving us apart, I don't know if this is ever going to uh, abate. Did you talk to anybody who said that this, this was one of the reasons that they may be retiring or considering retiring or leaving public uh, service? I personally did not, but, you know, uh, there has been other reporting. Some members, when they have been retiring, have mentioned that. Uh, I, I mentioned the story, I think, Gonzalez uh, of Ohio. He voted against, uh, he voted to impeach Trump uh, as a Republican and um, was uh, the target of much of the former president's ire. Um, you know, Representative Mo Brooks, a couple of years ago, uh, said lots of members that he'd spoken to decide to retire uh, because of um, you know the, the threats that they get, the constant threats. I just want to note too that Mo Brooks is the guy who said it's time for patriots to kick ass on January sixth. So a uh, little bit of irony it. there. <laughs> you beat me to it. I mean, and that's like that's sort of truly the sad thing uh, about the story. I think is that there is a recognition that this is beyond the bounds of proper discourse. Everyone, a lot of people know what it feels like to receive these threats and to know that there is someone out there that 
wants to kill them. And, and yet, despite that, despite knowing what like these words can, can do both sides again are going out and doing it again. Um, and they are engaging in the very behavior that they themselves, I mean, it's, it's, it's like not, none of these self-professed uh, good Christians remember the, the golden rule about doing unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. Um, and yeah, so we, again, it's the incentive structures are too overwhelming. I mean, there's also an effect more on, you know, more than just on the member too, but it's, it's also the, the staffs, you know, are, are typically some of the people who have to like screen some of these calls. Um, you know, these, these are folks who are paid less than, you know, is, is typical in the private sector for what they do and, and for public policy and so forth. I mean, we're, we're seeing some strain at the staff level too, right? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of reporting, a lot of it in you know, roll calls and CQ zone reporting, but a lot of reporting around how staff are, are uh, really having trouble dealing with uh, the, the traumas of January 6th. These sort of calls are obviously very triggering events. Um, you know, I, I talked to uh, one uh, staffer who said basically, yeah, everyone uh, in the office has thought about quitting at one point or another because of this specifically. And you know, notably, he was a staffer uh, based in uh, that uh, member's uh, state. He, he didn't work in D.C. Um, and, and the thing he pointed out is, you know, most of your district offices, they're just in like a strip mall or an office or, you know, they're, they're just another office someplace. They don't have the 2000 some odd U.S. Capitol Police that uh, patrol the Capitol uh, complex. Um, they at best might have a rent-a-cop security guard and more often than not, you know, no one but like just an open door. And, you know, they worry uh, about what might happen um, about someone, you know, just walking in with a, with a vendetta and uh, a blind hatred looking to looking to just cause as much um, pain and suffering as possible. So I, I, I do, I, I take a little bit of comfort in that, you know, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat that this is like a fairly dark, you know, subject in a dark time, but the fact that we aren't seeing mass resignations, like the fact that people do continue to show up for work, uh, you know, whether they're members of Congress or the lowliest staff assistants or, you know, you know, chiefs of staff and so forth. I mean, this, in a way, this kind of shows like how, how dedicated people are to their jobs and public service that they keep come, they keep going back even when they've seen, you know, the, some of the worst that could come and even under the, you know, sort of the sort of threats and abuse that they have to endure. Yeah. And I mean, that's something, uh, Angie Craig again from, uh, Minnesota said, you know, she, she basically said, like, if I had known what I uh, was going to go, uh, what I was going to face when I first decided to leave the private sector to run, I don't know if I would have made the same decision. But now that I'm here, I'll be damned if I'm going to let them run me off. And I think there is a lot of that sort of mentality that, uh, you know, I'm not going to be bullied out of, out of here. And, and that is, I think that is important. Um, you know, if you read, you know, uh, Tim Snyder's on, on tyranny, uh, 
the idea of using threats of violence and uh, bullying to drive you out of the political arena is like one of those slippery uh, steps towards you know the end of democracy. Um, so it is it is heartening to a certain extent that there are people that are willing to be brave in this way. I just wish, um, for the sake of the nation, that they'd be willing to be politically brave uh, as well and be willing to risk, uh, you know, losing a primary uh, by, you know, calling out the deplorable behavior of their co-partisans. Now, and that's a, it's a good point. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Snyder because he was our guest just a couple of weeks ago. We'll put that podcast in the show notes uh, for <laughs> for our listeners. Uh, but it is, you know, one of one of the points that he makes in in that book on tyranny is that you know don't underestimate the power of just one person just sort of being decent. I mean, it 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 really does have like an outsized effect in in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh... What's the Margaret Mead quote? Uh, I believe uh, don't underestimate the the power of a few people to change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. I'm paraphrasing there, but yeah. Well, Jim, thanks very much for for doing this project. It is uh, when when you when you when I think about just how much <laughs> is uh, how much work it was. Uh, I'm I'm really glad you did it, uh, and and uh, the results sort of speak for themselves, even if they are very uh, sort of stark. Uh, thank you very much for 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 doing it. Well, thank you. All right, and thanks for coming on the program. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time. 